Amen. You can grab a seat. Glad you're with us this morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope, and today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn or tap. Totally cool with digital Bibles. Turn or tap your way to Matthew chapter 8. If not, not a problem. We're going to have those words on the screen. We'd love to give you a copy of the scriptures in a modern English translation or, you know, digital Bibles. You can have one before I'm finished blinking my eyes (laughs) through the internet. Matthew chapter 8 is continuing our series on the real Jesus, and that series title is me trying to put some descriptions around just what the text says. We're just working our way through Matthew chapter, Matthew chapters 8 and 9, and the first couple of stories in Matthew chapter 8, I think, were very uplifting. We talked about Jesus and the fact that he was willing to touch the leper, how the clean made the unclean clean, how he took that upon himself, how he loved us enough to do that, but also had the authority enough to do that. Today, though, the next sort of story, it kind of hits a bump. I don't know, it can be a little bit jarring. So let's read it together. It says in Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. They were kind of around the Sea of Galilee, Seems like Jesus would pretty regularly kind of just flip over to the other side. Many of his disciples were fishermen. They were good with boats. I think it was just a good way for him to kind of tamp things down and go to the other side every now and again. So they're going to go over to the other side. And as they're leaving, before they go, a scribe comes up to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me hold the boat. Don't, Don't go yet. Let me first go and bury my father. And then Jesus says to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What? (laughs) Whoa, right? Like, wow. You come to church, you're used to people like begging you to follow Jesus. These guys are like announcing, we're in. And they throw out what I think are some pretty either like encouraging statements. Well, I'll go wherever you go. Or pretty legitimate sort of roadblocks. Hey, I got a funeral, you know, my dad. Can, can I do that? And then, and what does Jesus do? I mean, it seems pretty severe. And last week we started by kind of trumpeting how crazy it is that Jesus was a a minister for three years in an out-of-the-way corner of the Roman Empire, and then his ministry is over. And yet, it's not. It explodes in both influence and number until, here we are thousands of years later, and billions of people around the globe, across cultural lines, across any kind of ethnic or socioeconomic barrier, our followers claim that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. So many people followed him. Why? Today, we're kind of asking the opposite question. People who have understood him or think that they have, have rejected him. Why? What we see in this passage is people that seem to be wanting to follow him, and yet Jesus giving them an additional barrier, Jesus giving them an an additional qualifier. And I think we can see that what he's doing is he is actually kind of helping them to break through and understand who he really is. There are a lot of people that wanted to follow him, and yet 
the crowds that get big, lots of people who want to follow him, are then, as we see through the Gospels, shrunk way down. And why? It's usually because Jesus will say something hard. Can't be my disciple unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. What? All right. <laughs> Good luck with that. We're going back to the other Jewish guys. You know, like they don't, the crowd shrinks. And then he's doing miracles again. And what? Crowd gets huge. And then he'll teach them. Shoom. What's he doing? Well, I think he's cutting through. He's trying to say, you can follow me. And if you do, you're going to get something. You, you can follow me and you'll get bread. You know, I multiply food for thousands. You can follow me and you'll get healing, exorcisms. But I am doing those things to show you something else, to show you something greater. If you eat my food but don't know me, if you eat the bread that's broken and disciples are handing out, but you don't come to the bread of life, to me, then you haven't actually come to follow me. You just come to gain something. And I don't want to just take that and say, like, anybody who follows Jesus has to be selfless. That's not really the case. We do come to him because we need something. We need him to give us something. You just have to be clear about what he's giving. I think Jesus here is helping these two guys in particular, and then us through the millennia that have been reading this passage, to understand that he is giving something specific. He's not here to give you esteem. Yeah, you're proud of yourself, and you want other people to be proud of you too, and so you go out and you find this wonderful leader, and you're going to follow him and, and kind of be like him, and eventually kind of you know, show the world your own glory, your own goodness. Jesus isn't here for that. He's not going to enable your pride. Ooh. But you can see that some in the way that this guy speaks to him. There's a scribe that comes up to Jesus. A scribe would have been like a lawyer. This is a guy who's a pro at the law. But in Israel, the law is the Old Testament. So it's not just this kind of giant mass of books and cases. It's specific. It's a guy who studies Scripture. So he would have been an expert in the law, but also an expert in, you know, the religion of the Jews. He would have been a guy that would have been kind of impressive. This is a little bit of a rich young ruler moment. He comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That kind of bold proclamation of faithfulness to Jesus, you got to wonder what's there. Is it humble? Jesus, I see you. And I will do anything to be with you. Or is it proud? You look at all these followers, they're nothing like me, Jesus. I will follow you wherever you go. Very different. You have people that are healed of different things throughout the the text of the Gospels, and they cling to Jesus. It's kind of a weird thing. There's a point, and we can talk about it later if you want to. It's called the Messianic Secret, where Jesus is trying to tamp down some of these people until after his resurrection so that it doesn't break out into this kind of political rebellion. So he'll tell people, hey, don't tell anybody I've healed you. Uh, Keep this a secret. He's glad to serve them. He does it. But he's like, hey, let's not make this a PR thing. Those people, they're clinging to him. They see him and they want him. And then you have people like Peter. People like Peter who says, I will never betray you, Jesus. 
Ooh, that was a proud statement. And if you know the scriptures, this guy Peter, who was the first among the disciples, as Jesus is about to be crucified, denies Christ three times. His statement of, of loyalty was actually his statement of pride. He wasn't saying, Jesus, you're worth anything. He was saying, Jesus, I'm really impressive. Do you see the difference? Now, put yourself into the place of people coming to church on a Sunday morning. Are you coming here because you're desperate? You need Jesus. David says that, and he's right. You do. The question is whether you recognize it or not. But we're all broken people who need Jesus to put us back together. Do you realize that? Or is there a little part of you, maybe not such a little part of you, when you come on Sunday that wants people to see that you are a Christian? Now, there's not a lot of, like, cachet around that concept anymore, maybe in the 50s. Now it's kind of like, oh, maybe you're a bigot if you're a Christian. But among the other Christians, at least, it's a big deal to be an impressive Christian. Is there a part of you that comes for that? If so, Jesus says to you what he says to this guy. Hey, man, we're not here for that. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, and I've got nowhere to lay my head. He's not just saying it's going to be hard to follow me. He's saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If you're coming to me for esteem, now, if you're coming to me broken, you're actually going to find that when you, when you meet Jesus, when you know Jesus, he gives you a self-worth that is not only impenetrable, it's not only indestructible, it's a self-worth that is unfathomable, that you are known by the Father that you are loved by God himself, that you're adopted into his family. Wow! It's a self-esteem. It's an identity that is miraculous. You just didn't earn it. This is not about you. It's just not any kind of a foundation for pride. Maybe you come to him and you're, and you're just seeking that comfort. Well, if you come to Jesus for comfort, you're going to get it. I told you last week, he is not just the authoritative king of the universe, he is also a lover. He also says that a bruised reed, he's not going to break. A smoldering wick, he doesn't put out. He can be gentle like that, and he's gentle for you. You just have to be clear about why you're coming to him. Then you get to the guy that says he's just going to go bury his dad real quick. Now, I think this one we have way more sympathy for. You understand the proud guy, and you kind of laugh at him. Those are the funny characters in shows, the people who think they're really impressive, but they're actually an idiot. That's funny. But this guy is saying something that's a little bit troubling, because there's a part of you that wonders. If you call me and say, hey, man, this is unbelievable, my father's passed. I'm going to have to fly to you know, wherever for this funeral. And I say, I'm sorry, I need you to be at setup on Sunday. What? <laughs> You know, you just hang up and be like, all right, this guy's find another church and go to my father's funeral, you know, whatever. <laughs> but what does Jesus say? No. Why? Well, man, I mean, it seems pretty harsh, but Jesus says harsher things. He is clear that he has not come to make your life easier. He has come as a king, and he demands that you follow him. 
He says in another place, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me, not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me, take up his instrument of torture and execution and follow me, is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's really scary. That's scary. Do you understand now why people might not want to follow this Jesus? This is a Jesus that requires you to leave your pride and instead accept his lordship. It's humbling. It's bitter. This is a Jesus who requires you to leave all the stuff that you think is so important and put him on top of it, put him above it. That bruised reed and smoldering wick thing is still true. I mean, he saw this situation perfectly, and he said that to this guy. He doesn't necessarily say that to everybody. But he does say to everybody that you have to choose him above all else. Do you? See, now that's just, that's a different proposition. That's not just some like little sort of tail-end description of you on your Instagram page or something. That also you happen to follow Jesus. He is saying that if, he, if you're his, he's yours above all else. Do you see how this might be difficult for people to accept? People who actually understand it, because, I mean, again, you're going to have all kinds of followers when they'll stand before him one day and they'll try and hold up their beautiful, wonderful works that they've done, and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. So there's those people... But there's also people that look at Christianity and they go away sad because they have, you know, great wealth. They got something else in this world that they want to keep living for. It's scary. It's scary to think of accepting this Jesus. So then Matthew continues the rest of this chapter and he tells us some things about this Jesus that make it, make it compelling to want to be with him even if it's scary. Here's where he continues. He goes into this verse 23. When Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there rose a great storm on the sea. So the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went and they woke him up saying, Jesus, save us, Lord. We are perishing. And Jesus says to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? Do you see what Matthew is teaching you next? <laughs> if he's with you, yeah, you got to give up everything for him, but if he's with you, Nothing else matters. If he's with you, what else could matter? These were fishermen. So not all the disciples are fishermen, but the main sort of three lead disciples, Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers who were part of a shipping, a fishing company with their dad when Jesus calls them. Peter was a fisherman when Jesus calls them. They're fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. This is their home turf. This is what they do professionally. And their professional opinion is they're dead. 
Their professional opinion is that this storm is going to kill us and the Messiah of God. We got to wake him up because for some reason he's asleep. Now, I understand why he's asleep. If you're reading through these passages in the Gospels, you get the impression that Jesus' day starts early and never really ends. Like, he goes away early by himself to pray with the Father, and then as soon as he can, like, be found, crowds of people need him. When he goes away with his disciples to rest, the crowds, like, find him. And instead of saying, like, guys, come on, you know, he brings them in and he just heals them. He seems to only heal on the Sabbath day. I know that's not true, but so many of these stories are him healing on the Sabbath. The Sabbath's your day off, not for Jesus. He was healing on the Sabbath. I understand why he was asleep. But can you understand why the disciples are like pulling their hair out that the Son of God just sleeps through this death, this horrible storm? And yet when Jesus wakes up, (laughs) he rebukes them. He doesn't be like, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, <laughs> I was really out there. Uh, waves. He starts by addressing the disciples, not the waves. Yeah, he rebukes the waves and he rebukes the wind and they obey. But he also rebukes the disciples. Him rebuking the wind and the waves makes sense. I, I know it doesn't seem like it makes sense. He was just a guy, but no, he wasn't. If you or I were to do that, that would be crazy. If it worked, it would be even crazier. The fact that it worked points to what John says about Jesus, that in the beginning was the Word. Now, that's a, maybe a, a difficult concept when you read it for the first time, but we could really dive into it sometime together, and I think you'd get a lot out of it. But in the beginning was the Word, and, the, and this is meaning Jesus. And Jesus, the Word, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's a confusing sentence. If you just spoke that out loud, somebody would be like, huh? But it's a comprehensive sentence. It's a confusing sentence so that it can be a comprehensive sentence. For him to say, Jesus made everything, and you're like, okay, everything. But, and look, no, 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 no. And without him, not anything was made that was made. Oh, oh, okay, everything. Yeah, that's what I said the first time, but, all right. Verse 4, in him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Such a beautiful picture of what Jesus does in this storm. He shows himself master over creation. He's God. He created it. But he also shows himself to be light in the darkness. He steps into their confusion. He steps into their fear. He steps into their blind panic and brings peace. Now, Jesus commanding the dumb wind and waves, Jesus commanding, I mean that in the old sense of the word dumb, like um, they don't know what, that it's, it's not a speaking thing, you know, it's just, it's just elements. Him speaking to elements and them obeying him as the creator of the elements, sure. But when you get to thinking things, when you get to speaking things that have to make choices about Jesus, it does get more difficult. He doesn't rebuke the disciples in the same, or I'm sorry, he, he doesn't have obedience from the disciples in the same way as he does from the wind and the waves. And, and what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that they still don't get who he is. The problem with that is that they still haven't submitted themselves to him. Uh, a Bible commentator named Matthew Henry says it this way. 
Jesus does not chide the disciples for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. Isn't that good? That's exactly right. He's saying to them, don't you know me? I've got this. When I was a little boy, I remember this because I get told this story every now and again from my parents, uh, most of my grandparents. I cried, and they found me crying, and they asked me why I was crying, and it was because I figured one day I'd have to be part of the army, but I didn't know how to get there. Well, that's a stupid thing for a little kid to fear. It's a little kid fear because anybody with half of a brain is smart enough not to be afraid of such a stupid thing. Like, if you're three years old, A, maybe you'll join the army, maybe you won't. We won't know for 15 years, but if you do, they know how to get you there. Like, that wouldn't be the scary part of joining the army is finding how to, like, the directions on how to get there. From what I understand, recruiters are pretty intense. They would definitely get you there. That's, that's almost too dumb a fear to be comforted. Like, as a parent, where do you even start to help that child not be afraid of such a dumb thing? But I bring that up because Jesus' power is so great that if you really understood who he was, you would have the same sort of half humor, half exasperation over the fear of the disciples with this storm. He's so good. He's so great. He's so powerful. He's so loving that it would be as dumb to worry when he's in the boat. He, he comforts those who get thrown into lion's dens. That's a much worse situation. To be a guy who gets thrown into a pit filled with lions. That's ridiculous. What's, what's a, what a crazy like old world combination of both power and just like craziness. To have like, no, 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 we're going to dig a pit. We're going to fill it up with hungry lions. And if you don't do what I want, they won't be as hungry anymore. We're going to throw you into the pit. Well, Daniel got thrown into the pit, and the Lord closed the mouth of the lion. Again, in that book of Daniel, he can walk in the fire with these followers of his, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, disobey the emperor, and he throws them into a blazing furnace. His power, his ability is so great that not only does the fire not burn them, the smell of smoke doesn't even touch them. In this case, not only does he save them, not only does he take away their fear, he stands with them. Nebuchadnezzar is looking into the furnace and he says, there's a fourth and one like, like the Son of God. I hope you see where I'm building. I hope you see where I'm going. He, he can heal your leprosy or he can suffer with you. He can suffer for you. What Jesus does is not just calm the storm. What Jesus does is then eyeball his disciples and try to get them to understand who he is, what he's come to do. Now, what if the thing that's facing you, what if the, the bad guy that you're hoping Jesus comes in and saves the day from isn't something uh, you know, is, is just sort of elemental as disease or storms? What if it's something intelligent? What if it's something malicious? Look at verse 28. 
And when they came to the other side, when Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gerardines, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, when we talk about Jesus multiplying bread, when we talk about Jesus calming storms, we talk about Jesus healing people, it's supernatural, but I think you're, you know, at least listening. But to the modern reader, when you get to a point like this, where there are demon-possessed men who then speak with the voice of Satan to the Son of God, it gets a little beyond the pale for some. That seems so odd to to think like, okay, there's actually demon possession here, like the movie The Exorcism kind of thing, like this is, you're saying that this is something that you believe? Yeah, I do. And part of the reason that you don't, I think, might be just the strategy of the person that we're talking about here, this enemy that we're talking about. Great short article by a guy named Chuck Lawless about it, and he talks about how in the West versus sort of other places around the world, the enemy seems to have a different strategy. And I think we can actually kind of see why. See, there are cultures around the world where missionaries will go, and there will be people that have their, their sort of their cultural religion is animistic. Um, their, their cultural religion sees spirits all over the place. And the religion is sort of based on appeasing or empowering yourself with those spirits. And in those cultures, when those missionaries come, they find people who are demon-possessed. They're possessed by demons, speak with other voices, have these like crazy things that they do. So it's not uncommon. This isn't something that happened in ancient days, but not today. It's all around the world. You can go find it. The question then is why it doesn't happen as often here. Like, does Hope Church have an exorcism room? <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> I hope we never will, but, but no, we don't. We don't have an exorcism team. Nobody has that on their name tag, right? That's not something that happens in the West because in the West, we are kind of startled by the concept of the supernatural full stop. Like, like even as somebody who is maybe like friendly to the things that you're reading in the Bible, isn't there a part of you, just a part maybe, maybe a whole lot of you, that has a little bit of trouble with the miracles? Isn't there a part of you that kind of wants to allegorize them a little bit? Okay, yeah, it says he healed the leper, but doesn't it just mean that when he touched the leper, like he gave the leper that kind of love and that healed his heart? And isn't that the real healing? Yeah, and he healed the leper. Like that's what it says in the text. But isn't there a part of you that kind of wants to go that route? Wasn't true love the real miracle? Okay, yeah, and... Isn't there a part of you that wants to kind of allegorize this away? Well, let me just tell you that I think that's the strategy of the enemy. I think that little seed of doubt that you have as you read every page of Scripture is exactly what he's going for. And it would be totally undercut if every other day it was like, well, yeah, there's Fred. Watch out. (laughs) We tried to chain him up and he just busts out because all those demons, you know, like if that happened regularly, it would be much harder for you to just have a lot of like kind of skepticism about any kind of supernatural stuff. So there was demon-possessed guys, and they come up, and Jesus says, uh, and behold, they, they cry out to Jesus, what have you come to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Meaning there will be an appointed time where the Lord puts all of these enemies of him to rest. There's an appointed time, and they're saying, whoa, 
Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. And they came out, and they went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now we have the same story in other Gospels. And then after this exorcism, the demon-possessed sit with Jesus, calm and in their right mind. It's possible, it's, it's, it's real, that we do have whisperers on our shoulder like Bugs Bunny cartoons where he's considering a decision and Elmer Fudd's got like a little Elmer Fudd with a halo and a robe and a little Elmer Fudd with like horns and a tattoo and one of them speaks into his ear one thing and one speaks into his ear another. It is biblical that we do have an enemy. It is real that you have enemies with flesh and that are spiritual, that are coming against you constantly. Does this emperor, does this king have the ability to help you even there? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. (laughs) Totally, totally. With absolute control. Just like the weather, which obeys him immediately. The demons, when they see him, immediately start reaching for little things they think might be helpful. They don't try to go toe-to-toe with him. They immediately start seeing for who he is. Oh, son of God. More than you can say for the rest of us. The demons at least know who he is. Oh, you son of God. Then they say, ah, what are you doing here? You know, they start whining. They come at him, not with opposition, but like trying to figure out a way around it. They're like, okay, but by your own rules, there's an appointed time. The way that they try to argue with Jesus is by using Jesus's own word. But they have to. What other authority is there? They show that they are completely under his control. So he sends them away. He sends them away in a way that seems kind of weird to us by sending them in these pigs. And then the pigs go... But look at the response of the people. It says in verse 33, The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Do you see again what Matthew's talking about here? Do you see again why people may not want him? See, to have Jesus is to have one who is focused on changing the world and changing people. One that might even cost you some herds of pigs every now and again. Carson, when he was talking about this verse, he says, they preferred pigs to persons, swine to the Savior. Yeah, kind of. But aren't we doing the same thing? Hey, if you're thinking about Jesus this morning, if you're, if you're thinking about who this Lord is and you're trying to understand this real Jesus, you got to see past a couple of things in your own heart. Is there a part of you that just wants him because of what he's going to say about you? that you're going to be impressive before him and he's going to commend you for who you are. Well, he's not in that game. Is there a part of you that wants him, but you're just scared? You're scared because there's all of this stuff in your own world and you're not sure that he can come in and really change those horrible things. Well, he can. Doesn't matter what it is. Put it under any category you want. He can either fix it outright or he can do the greater good. He can suffer with you, and he can suffer for you. That's what he's come to do. It says at the very end of Matthew, And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This real Jesus does demand that you lay down other stuff. But if you will, you get him. And if you get him, you get everything. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would give us the grace to see our hearts a little bit, to understand what might be behind some of our, if, if not outright rejection of Jesus, what slows us down when it comes to obeying and loving Christ. Father, what, what makes us check ourselves when we think about going all in with Jesus? I mean, I think most Christians, most of the time, are trying to barter with you, try to give you a little bit of obedience so they can maintain a lot of just um, decision-making on their own, Lord. Give you the crown on Tuesday so they can wear it the rest of the week kind of thing. I pray, God, that you would forgive us for that um, presumption. And instead, Father, lead us to the cross. Lead us to pick up a cross, but lead us to see you on the cross, the real Jesus who died to save us from our sin. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.